Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Martin Razard, who has worked on many Star Wars movies, from Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, to all of the new Disney films as a creature concept sculptor. His work is incredible and instantly iconic, from Raddus to Beezer Fortuna to The Emperor, and I can't wait for you to hear his stories. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 128, Martin Rizard. I would love to start with first inspirations for you as an artist. And did you have a love of Star Wars growing up? Or what was inspiring you early on? I saw the first one when it came out at the cinema and then went to see every one of them afterwards. It was a great time for kind of fantasy movies and, and the likes of Gremlins and Ghostbusters and Legend, all these things. There was so much material coming out. It was amazing. The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and all these things kind of Every time one of those would come out, I would go, this is the stuff I want to be part of. I don't know how it works. I don't know how to get in there from my Parisian suburb to uh, Hollywood studios, but this is the place for me. So this is the kind of stuff that I grew up on. And very early on, I just took control of a downstairs room in the basement and just made a big mess of it with clay and plaster bandage and plaster and alginate and all this kind of thing. And I was lucky enough to find a friend who lived a couple of houses down and he had the same passion as I so we kind of explored we kind of explored together we locked each other's uh, arms in really poorly made casts and stuff like that at the time that there was no real video so there was like a, a big scene with super 8 film you know yeah a super 8 camera and you've got a film and you know you don't know what's gonna what it's gonna look like until it comes back weeks later after being developed but there was like a whole scene in paris there was a festival every year a super 8 cinema festival and it became a really big thing i don't know if you heard about it but every year there was hundreds of people who would dedicate all their free time to making horror Super 8 film or animation or sound fiction with no budget. And, and we were kind of part of that. They had to stop the festival after four or five years because the audience was too rowdy and you couldn't watch the films anymore because <laughs> it, it was just too noisy. People were just coming here to have a good time and that was it. But they also had like a special makeup effects competition and you could go on set on stage and present you. So I won it a couple of times and they was kind of like, oh, that's maybe that's something that I that I can do. How did you go from submitting things to film festivals to then working on films or on TV shows? It took a very long time because there was there was no such market in France where I was. I started by working in theatre. I did masks for theatre and puppets and kind of magic things and I spent quite a lot of time in my early 20s doing these kind of things and responsible for the build of everything that was presented on stage on, on quite a, a big sort of company. Uh, they were doing puppetry and um, modern dance and it was kind of a very kind of arty thing and it was a beautiful mix of people and I had to constantly, constantly, they had shows that they were creating shows, then the shows were too. And then the shows that was created before would come back to be fixed. And then there was like a constant turnaround of work. And the, the, I was stuck in the workshop all the time, fixing everything. And I had a friend, that young friend that I that was living in my street. He moved on to cinema. He did uh, City of Lost Children and kind of uh, nice films like that. And he was calling me going, can you, 
I've got this film and can you come? And I was like, I'm stuck. Where's my puppet? <laughs> I can't do that. It was, it went like that for about seven, eight years. And then I um, decided to make the move and said, no, I can't do it anymore. And I, I did about a year with my friend and we did a couple of films together. And then I moved to Australia. My wife is Australian. So we moved to Australia and I had kind of a portfolio of work, like animatronic masks and puppets and sculpts and things like that. I knew that the cinema business was opening in Sydney because of the creation of Fox Studio and there was quite a lot of American money being, being put in there and there was tax incentives and I got there and there were we got there late 2018 and they were just shooting on The Matrix and I got in touch with a couple of people and got a gig on The Matrix which was nice. And then from there, I did I did a couple of films like that. I went on the Gold Coast. Uh, for, I worked for John Cox Studio, who had won an Oscar for Babe. He had a film called Komodo. We were doing the animatronics and the 3D animation, the, what would have been stop motion, was handled by uh, Phil Tippett. So I got to meet Phil Tippett and it was like, wow. And he looked at my sculpt and said, that's a nice sculpt. I went, oh my God, you're the man. Australia was my first foot in the door for the cinema industry. After Komodo, I went back to Sydney and worked on a TV series co-produced by Australian television called Farscape. And then um, there was about four seasons and some specials, and I did, I did four seasons of that. There's a lot of Farscape alumni that ended up working on Star Wars prequels. Is that how you initially got connected to Attack of the Clones? Or Yeah, I was working for the Elsies at the time. It's not through them that I got the gig. Somebody called me and asked if I could join them. It was not in the creature department. It was in the costume props department, which is anything that relates to costume but is not soft. And I saw it as a nice opportunity and I jumped on the occasion and, and went and did that. And then after that one, I went back to Farscape and then I was called again to do a, a Revenge of the Thys. I worked on two prequels on, on those. It came from the fact that it was happening in Sydney at the time. There was quite a lot of stuff coming in and out of Sydney and it was quite a nice time to be there. It's a nice place to live, very, very chilled and, and relaxed on the weekend and it's quite nice. You helped work on Django Fett, and I know you helped work on Darth Vader as well. I'm interested in your process there. Anything that sticks out to you that was maybe a challenge or, or something that you're proud of still looking back on, on that? Coming from a creature background, costume props is completely different because you're stepping into model making. You're talking about a quarter of a meal is not acceptable if there's a difference. You know, it's, it's, it's really, really sharp and precise. So I had to learn new techniques. I had to sharpen my my way of going around things. And, and that was that was really exciting. There's also the fact that when you um, when you do creatures and prosthetic, you're always making fake things. Like they, they're made to look real, but they're actually, you know, fake things. But when you get into costume props, when you're working with metal and per, mother of pearl, and you're actually creating real objects. Ivo Kovny, who was um, the head of department, on costume props was always saying whatever we make has to sustain close museum scrutiny because they will be displayed everywhere you know people will get really close to them it has to be perfect there was a lot of moments when you think you're there and you call your boss and he goes oh, no I don't think so <laughs> constantly have to revise your your thing and just sharpen it and sharpen it but it was it was really nice it was very intense because the Deadlines were really tight and uh, the expectations were immense. Um, 
but it was a it was a great experience. It was and plus being being allowed into the Star Wars world for the first time, you know, being inside, you just go, oh my god, this is amazing. You know, one one day I was alone in the workshop during the lunch break, and this guy comes in. He goes, um, I was hello. I was wondering if you could help me with my costume. You could file it a bit here and there and. Oh, by the way, I'm Anthony Daniels. Go, yeah, I know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> I'm Martin. So that, yeah, there are nice moments like that. Or you just, you go out for lunch and you, you try and get close to Christopher Lee in the lunch queue because you know that if you can sit next to him at the table, you're going to hear amazing stories during your during whole lunch break. You don't have to say anything. You just sit there and go, oh, all right. It's very interesting to track your journey from, let's say, episode three to episode seven. And all the work that you do in between is so fascinating and so wonderful. And, and one that really sticks out to me just as a big fan of especially that era of the show is Doctor Who. And all of the creature designs, I was looking through your portfolio and I was like, oh, yes, every single one of these I remember. And I st it's still like kind of like in the back of my brain somewhere, like the Centauran or the remodeled Cybermen or what's the Rhinoceros Man called? The Dune. Yeah, yeah, and or the Ood, right? Like, crazy, incredible things. What was that like, working in that world? Were you a fan of that as well? Did you ever grow up with that, or were you just kind of thrust into that world as a professional? I was just dropped in there. Um, after my wife and I and our kids left Australia, we tried to go back to France and try and hook up on some jobs there, but it wasn't quite happening. I couldn't I couldn't get my hold of in France. Um, so I, because of my... Star Wars connection. I knew a couple of people who worked in England, so I decided to try that, and I went to uh, I went to Millennium FX, who were doing Doctor Who at the time, and I was offered a job on a, on an ad, like uh, for about three or four weeks, sculpting an alien creature for a German TV ad, something like that. Kind of what kind of worked out okay, and then on the back of that, Neil, who was um, who ran Millennium Effects at the time, said, if you want to come back for about 10 months, I've got a lot of work and I've got Doctor Who and this and that. So I was not familiar with Doctor Who because it's not a show that made it in France. It never made it in France. So I had none of the fan-based sort of knowledge of it. It was all very fresh and new to me. So I came, I came, I came in there just with a complete virgin look i didn't know what was going on i didn't know what it was so i was discovering working with with photoshop at the time and the early very early days of zbrush on a little laptop i was trying to incorporate all of that into the my workflow because i had a feeling that that would come handy in a few years time most of the time like all those early doctor who designs i was doing i was doing plastiline maquettes but i was doing only half of the maquettes just to gain time to be as quick as possible. And I would photograph it on the turnaround. And then so, so you would get the three-quarter, the, the good three-quarter and the front and then the bad three-quarter. And then you just flip it in Photoshop and just create a face and just and then you play around with it, do different versions. It was very rough and I had no idea what I was doing, but I got away with it. Yeah, you definitely got away with it. I've I watched Doctor Who for so long and those creature designs are still either being used now or really kind of part of the, of the mythos, which is very impressive just for how, how storied that franchise is. And being on storied franchises, and I wonder, maybe I'm just projecting in terms of your relationship, but 
was Prometheus the first time you were able to work with Neil Scanlon, or what was that like? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. When working at Millennium, I met that sculptor called Ivan Manzella, who was Neil's sculptor since he left Hanson's, and he's done numerous jobs with him and a very talented young sculptor. He sculpted uh, Grandma from the Dinosaurs TV show when he was like 17 or something like that. It's just, uh, and we, we got on well. And um, after I left Millennium, I went on to Potter. Well, I did a, a, a little job for um, a couple of months' work for Mark Coulier, who had his, was starting his own company, and we did a couple of TV shows with him. Then I was called on Potter, and then on Potter there was request at one stage for extra sculptors, and I, and I went, well, we should get Ivan because Ivan's pretty good. I don't know if my input had anything to do with him being there, but we ended up being able to work together again, and that was fun. Yeah, I think he, he put my name forward to Neil, and then I, I got the call on, at the end of Potter for uh, Prometheus. It's like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. Thank you. <laughs> yes, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, well, let me check. No, I don't have anything else on. I'll do that. It was one of those um, experiences where the, the process is just absolutely crazy. Just really fascinating. Every day is a new adventure, and you constantly have to find new solutions. And it was one of those when the experience is better than the result in my eyes. But it, that happens. It's still a beautiful looking film, visually stunning. There's a couple of things in the story that kind of don't quite add up in my eyes. But who am I to judge? All those alien prequels, sequels, whatever they are, there are moments that are just like brilliant. And then there are moments where I don't like it. I don't know. Uh, But the creature design is is one of those brilliant aspects. So from there, I guess, did you just kind of follow Neil to Star Wars? Or how did that initial conversation go to to join them? There was a couple of years gap on the back of Prometheus where there was, I went here and there. I went back to Mark, did some uh, World War Z in Budapest, I did, about, I did about four or five weeks there with, for him, applying makeup mainly. I did a bit of sculpting in his workshop for a month or two, and then we went to Budapest for a night shoot. And then after that, I worked for David White on a couple of projects. The first, Maleficent. I started doing some designs and some sculpting for David White, and then I, I moved on to art department to do some more designs. On the back of that, I did Thor, The Dark World, for David White once again, sculpting prosthetics and applying makeup. Guardians of the Galaxy as well. So there was, yeah, there was quite a nice flow. I think it was while I was on Guardians that I was working with Ivan once again on Guardian, and I, Ivan was going, uh, I think you know, might have got something that you might be interested in, might give you a call at this time. And everybody, of course, everybody in the room, every sculptor in the room knew that Star Wars was coming and was wondering which workshop would get it. And we were like, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? We were asked not to tell anyone and to keep it really hush-hush. And there was there was a couple of weeks when we were working during the day on Guardian sculpting. And then evenings and weekends, we were kind of doing some designs and trying to build a portfolio for Neil and, and not being able to tell anyone. And it's just like... We started in, I joined the design team in July 2013, I think, on Force Awakens. Let's talk about Force Awakens, because when I think about sequel creatures and aliens, a lot of those come from Force Awakens, and a lot of those are your designs. I'd be interested in your process and how it had evolved up to that point, and then what your guidelines and guardrails while creating. 
there's a language to um, the Star Wars aliens that is specific to Star Wars. If, if you were to put a Star Trek alien in Star Wars, it would look weird. It's, it doesn't work on the same sort of visual language, in a sense. Star Wars is very, is very dirty and there's lots of recycling, if you will, lots of uh, dirty parts, recycling parts, even recycling of life forms. You can tell that this is based on this sort of animal or this sort of animal those two put together. And it's an interesting way to study that kind of language. So we had to kind of keep it that way. We were also trying to uh, make it as practical as possible. Every design we were making, we were trying to find ways for it to work in the real world, not put it out to the digital world. We were really trying to keep things, keep the ball in our camp as much as possible. We kind of built a collection, not a collection, but a group of performers of different shapes and sizes and really tall, strong ones, really diminutive ones and one with missing limbs and all these kind of things. And once you've got a performer that you know you can, they can handle it, you kind of hang on to them. Plus you've got body cast so you can save time onto the process. And, and there are some performers that we've worked with over the whole three films plus the other ones. Trying to rein yourself in and stay within the Star Wars visual language, which is the difficult thing I find. With Force Awakens specifically, there are, I think, two major set pieces with a ton of aliens, right? There's Maz's Cantina Castle, and then there's also on Jakku, all those aliens running around, as well as, the, I guess, Resistance so 3. Are there any designs that stick out to you or any that you're particularly proud of? There was one that came out, I don't know if you, if you see much in the in the film, Sarko Plank, which is kind of crustaceous face and helmeted. I, I, I like the simplicity of that look. To me, it feels quite Star Warsy because it, it could be living on Tatooine or it's just kind of uh, protected from the dust and stuff like that. So that I like that one. And Dang Sisters in Maz's Castle, little eat mosquito things drinking in at the table. And this one came up from an understanding I had of how you can how you better your chances of setting a design. Because I started by just doing single images. Like I kind of tend to work, it starts in ZBrush going to work Photoshop and then extrapolate from there. And I, I realized that you get a better chance of setting a design if the image tells a story. If it's just a single alien on a neutral background, it's just going to go put, 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 twice. I had this idea of those three or four guys just having long things, drinking and chatting and playing. And I just did a setup image around that. And it was my, I still don't understand ZBrush, but I can manage to adjust and then throw it in Photoshop, put some colors on it. And I think when JJ saw that, he saw, a scene that could be in Mazda's castle and I thought, yeah, that could work. So this was one of my lucky my lucky ones. <laughs> there's been there's been so many of them that have been ditched. So even though if I very often get bogged into adding details to an image and put some technical things and do this and do that. And but it's at the end of the day, if the image is not telling a story, it really doesn't matter. And I've learned that through that process on that film, I think. With Rogue One I'd be interested, especially because you then step back, what, 30 years to a different era of Star Wars. Does that affect any of your designs or how are you kind of approaching those creatures? I'd love to talk about Beezer because I love Beezer. We were really lucky because we had that amazing performer who has this very atypical sort of a body shape. The director really wanted to go back to the original maquette 
that is that's in in the archive and it's quite different from the final makeup but he wanted to get back to that spirit a bit thinner a lot more gaunt and yeah we managed to um, get Peter Lidella on the cast and did a couple of I think I did three or four versions before um, Gareth agreed to that one and then I broke it down into a makeup and it looked fantastic it was really good fun and I think the first time we shot it it was in uh, in a scene where um, Galette the big octopusy thing is in the jail and he was part of that one that that scene he was in a jail he was shirtless he he, he was he looked amazing and he had a bit of dialogue and uh, we put a lot of work into that makeup and it looked quite stunning the scene was cut <laughs> you see Biza once around the table in the background as you enter the den of Denzel Washington's character Forrest Whitaker Forrest Whitaker yeah so you you just barely seen in the background and just go, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but a lot of the things we do are created for texture, visual texture more than anything. You have to accept that. They're not all going to be featured. And Radis was. Yeah, I was about to say, one that was very featured was Radis because you helped sculpt Akbar in Force Awakens. How did you create a, a new character? How did you make him very visually distinct? from Akbar, which is what we're familiar with. It came from discussions with um, Gareth, the director. I was given that task and I, I got a, I started with a plastiline cast out of the Akbar thing and I tried to stay within the Akbar world, but it wasn't enough. I think I was being too prudent. And uh, Gareth came and he said, uh, no, it has to be more, it's gotta be more. And uh, so Neil, who was there, just said, well, just show us. He gave him some plastilium because, and he put some big chunks here and there. So it's more like this, more like that. That was his vision. And I just cleaned up behind him, really. But he, he wanted it to be more like Churchill and really grumpy and kind of uh, Agbar's cousin. But at, at the family party, you go and talk to Agbar because Radus, you just don't want to get near him. You know, that was the story. I feel like we could talk for hours. I could just name an alien and be like, okay, let's really dive in because all of them are so fantastic. And I guess to move to Last Jedi, the, the standout moments, we have the Canto Bite creatures, but then we have the caretakers on the planet. How collaborative were you with like Jake Clint Davies and like the art department? And how did you then have to work with them and translate and really make a, a fantastic addition to the kind of creature library with, with the caretakers specifically? Jake came up with the, uh, the uh, idea for the design and uh, there was um, an artist in the costume department, I can't remember his name, sorry about this, who did some renditions just more focusing on the costumes and there were beautiful drawings, beautiful ink uh, drawings. When the time came to bring them to, uh, to life in the sculptural world, I had quite a wide range of, of reference from both artists and I would try and get back to the original artist to make sure that what I'm doing is kind of in sync with what they had in mind. Because very often at the design phase, there's there's a bit of room for imagination. So not all the details are locked in. You know, there's there's a lot of things that come to life in the sculpture world, in the sculpting world more than drawing. You don't want to get carried away and kind of veer off, walk off the path. You've got to make sure that you're within the right line. There was an example of that in um, Force Awakens, this... There was a, that was a Jake design as well. Sorry for going back in time, but it illustrates that idea quite well. This the the holder, the big big guy on Jakku with the the yellow built built up arms that you see walking with the sun behind him. That was very very simple sketch. I ended up doing like a huge clay sculpt, and then you have to bring in a lot of details in there. 
But Jake was happy with it, so I got away with it. <laughs> with Solo specifically, a Carillion Hounds are so interesting to me, especially because there's the practical element as well that had to work through that, right? Like sometimes there were actual dogs on set or whatever it was that were then retrofitted. What what was that process for you and how was that really making sure that it was able to be used on set and used afterwards to really make that sell the illusion? From the start, there was a definitive choice at making those as dressed up dogs. So we had, it was quite a long process so We to select the right dogs. So we had to make mock-up costumes to see which dogs could work with being encased in a costume. And then those dogs, one, the, the hero dog would be scanned and then uh, printed, and then we would duplicate that. And I would do the sculpt based on that scan. Um, and then we would mold that and uh, all the bits, all the foam would be broken down in bits so they could be adapted to various dogs' anatomy because they're not exactly all the same. And we had to make some compromise as to... Um, details because the, the main thing was that the dogs would have been able to perform the dogs had to be able to, if they don't have room to move their ears they're not happy if you can't if they can't be given a treat they can't perform they have to be able to see their trainer so that they know their mark and they have to be able to hear that trainer as well when you're on set with one of those you sometimes you wish the real sounds will would be kept in the final edit because very often to call the dogs they're running being angry and this and that and at the other end the race there's the trainer with a little squeaky toy going squeaky 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 <laughs> so that the dog has his cue he knows where to go another of the solo designs that really has had now a lot of staying power in the star wars universe is six eyes because now new additions to his race have been coming what was that like for you? And also that probably had pretty heavy animatronic work as well that you would either have to work around or build with that in mind. Design-wise, it came as a surprise. I think it's, uh, I had it under, under my elbow. I did it in the very early days, that film. And I think I did it while I was on holiday and I was just kidding time. And I thought, oh, that looks a bit Star Warsy. That's interesting. Because, you know, this, the, this is something that you see quite often, but I just pushed it in a different direction. It was kind of a safe sort of idea. And, and then I brought it back in and then it was selected. I was delighted. I refined the sculpt and worked with the directors at the time, because at the time there were two directors. When Gustav Hogan and Matt Denton starting started building the make and programming, it was just absolutely insane. Absolutely insane. It, it was I don't know if you've seen videos of the convention that Neil did where he is with Matt and he's got that head. There's nobody in it. It has this kind of gyroscopic sort of device inside it. So you take the head and if you turn it right, there's going to be, there's going to be a delay and then the eyes will follow through. And it was, all, it was all natural to that thing. It looked so fluid. It was incredible. You could be on set, watch that scene work and go, I can't believe this happening it was really really nice it was so fluid and so mobile at the sculpting stage i spoke to gustav who would build the mech to make sure that it would fit within the parameters of his servos and what he was going to build i would just expand things here contract them there so that it's not going to be a problem later on there's a lot of that in in what i do i'm always trying to make sure that the persons down the line will not be affected by decisions I made early on in the mold making process. It can 
Sometimes a slight move into the sculpt will make their job easier and then running the foam and then coring, making, painting, all of that is, all of those things have an effect. The biggest surprise in Solo is Maul at the end and bringing Maul back after so many years and also aging Maul, right, to a point where he does not look like what we see in 1999. Well, was your process, I guess, applying that makeup and working with Ray Park? You didn't work on Phantom Menace, so it's kind of funny. Now you have you have some legacy into all three of the prequels. I wasn't involved with the sculpting or the designing of this one. I just lend a hand in the makeup application because it just to take the time down. The more we were, the faster it went, really. But Colin Ware did the sculpt. He did a maquette, a beautiful little bust, and then he did the sculpt. And it was just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it was One of the main things was that the, the original markings were just basically makeups in Phantom Menace, but now they're kind of aged in and they, it kind of carved in, they became carved in a little bit. You don't really read it that well because of the hologram filter it was quite a beautiful little sculpt lots of details and um, and ray was a pleasure to work with he's he's a very uh, intense guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it's exciting to see him on the screen but then i think it was maybe a couple months later they released just kind of you know when they take the studio set photos with the gray background and you could really see the work on the face and it was almost as exciting as seeing him on screen because you're like oh he looks incredible like all these years later so but with rise of skywalker and especially palpatine i know that's a little bit different with maul because i think that you designed and sculpted and, and applied that you, you had a hand in a lot of the steps of that process as well as the arm what was that's a huge part of that movie what was yeah and we, we were not allowed to talk about it at all there was a very small group inside the creature department who were in the know and we were not supposed to talk to the other people in our department about what we were doing which created quite funny situation yeah we started doing a test on one of our performers who um aiden cook had a, a, a quite a similar face so i sculpted a a version of the emperor's makeup on him and we did a little shoot and we did the application with ivan and like one afternoon we put a hood on him and we were trying to replicate uh, as much as possible. And then we, we got to meet with Ian and we didn't live cast him. I think it was scanned. The early version, the one when you first see him before he's back into his emperor shape, um, it was once again Colin Jackman who worked on that. It was There was Colin, there was Louis, there was Luke. There was quite a bunch of us doing different things. Because I had sculpted the emperor on, on Aiden, I was given the task of re-sculpting the... the uh, uh, the real one. It's really interesting to try and find as much reference as possible and try and get that wrinkle and that wrinkle and the right one. And I have worked on Potter with for, for, for Nick Dudman. I remember having a dream and I was at a party and Nick was there and I was going, hey Nick, so can you tell me about your emperor makeup? What how did you? I was like, I'm not supposed to talk about it. <laughs> and I woke up and I said, no, it was only a dream. It's okay. It's okay. For the Emperor, Emperor, we, we, we try and stick to the way it was done as much as possible. The, the only thing we changed was that we ran it in silicon instead of foam. And But it was just a forehead and cheekbones and then a lot of old age steeple, just stretching the skin, stippling latex on it, drying it, powdering it, and then it creates that very heavy texture that kind of is a bit leathery. And It was amazing on the throne set with that character, with his lenses and everything. And you just look at that and, and you go, oh, this is, uh, 
this is quite cool. He's going, that's, that's quite cool. When you think you've reached an apex on cool, Spike Lee walks on set. So, oh, it does get cooler then. <laughs> he was in London for the BAFTAs. He was picking up a BAFTA for Black Clansman. And he came to visit JJ on set. What about post-Skywalker upcoming projects, things that you can talk about or things... I know that you probably can't talk about a lot of things that you've been working on, but anything after that people can check out or that you're particularly proud of upcoming or otherwise? I'm really looking forward to June 22 when Dominion comes out. I'm really looking forward to seeing that one. Yeah, me too. I can't wait. Because there's a lot of cool stuff in it. I cannot wait. I'm a huge Jurassic Park fan and i'm very excited to see to see what's going on martin thank you so much for the time and the stories well thank you for inviting me it's been a pleasure to talk to you really has been Mr. Rezard is such a talent and was so gracious with his time. Thank you so much again. To see his beautiful work for yourself, head to his site, martinrezard.com. That's all for this week. Coming up soon are my already recorded interviews with Toby Longworth, Brian Muir, and many more. If right now you can leave a five-star rating review for the show, it means a lot and really helps me out. So until next week, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the force be with you.